Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs 28, verse 8. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. That's the ESV. That's what's printed in your bulletin. I'd also like to read from the New King James. It reads, one who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. Usury is interest, or the time value of money. Wicked men overcharge interest and take financial advantage of the poor. The fellow in the first half of the proverb, the one demanding usury and profiting by unjust gain, is obviously not pitying the poor, not loving the poor. He's a scam artist. He's a loan shark. He squeezes his profits out of the poor. But God, all the while, in his sovereignty and in his way and his time, is really raking those profits together for the man who is open-handed with the poor. Interest serves as an honest purpose as a time value of money. It's the price of having money or assets today and repaying them in the future, like our mortgage on our home. It's also the means of putting money to work for you when you can loan it or invest it, then receive it and its earnings back sometime later. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with interest or immoral about it but it is the price of money. This proverb's wisdom condemns charging interest to the poor. It condemns any other means of taking financial advantage of the poor, such as overcharging when you're selling to them, underpaying when you're buying from them, delaying payments, keeping items up as collateral, holding them back, or delaying the payment of wages. This subject has been... uh, calls for what's been called sanctified common sense. If a poor neighbor comes asking for a loan until he gets paid in two weeks, a good man would loan him the money without interest. He would do the same if he needs to repair his only means of transportation. He would, however, if a poor man wanted to finance toys for his children or start a hobby business through you, interest would most likely be very appropriate. Sanctified common sense is antithetical to our government's handout programs for the poor. The great and glorious God of heaven, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and whose riches can never be exhausted, has chosen both the rich and the poor of this world as objects of his love and generosity in saving each of us. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing to kneel. We have two texts for this morning's message. Uh, The first is the commandment about coveting found in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And then 
Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. In his book, Traveling Light, Pastor Max Lucado invites us to visit the biggest prison in the world. Not only is it the largest, it is the most oppressive prison as well. All you have to do is ask the inmates. They will tell you that they are overworked and underfed. And what's more, no prison in the world is so permanent. Most inmates never leave, they never escape, and they serve a life sentence. Do you know the name of this prison? It is the prison of want, says Lucado. And all its inmates are in want. They want something. They want something bigger, better, nicer, faster, thinner. They want. Now, they don't want much. They want just one thing. One new job, one new car, one new house, whatever that one thing may be. And when they have that one thing, they will be happy. When they have that one, they will leave the prison. But then it happens. The new car smell fades away. The new job gets old. The neighbors buy a larger home entertainment center. And you understand how it goes. Before you know it, the freed prisoner is back in jail. So let me ask you this morning, are you in prison? You are if you feel better when you have more and worse when you have less. You're in prison if joy is only one purchase away, one transfer away, one award away, one makeover away. Then you're in the prison of want. You and I live in a world today where very few people are truly content. Even contented Christians are hard to come by. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In his paraphrase, Eugene Peterson writes in the message, the same verse, life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. In other words, the key to your satisfaction is not to be found in having more things. And the good news, though, is that the Apostle Paul has written us a letter. He sent us a message that can get us out from the prison of want once and for all. And that is simply because he has a secret to tell us, the secret of satisfaction. Do you know what it is, the secret to contentment? It's simply that contentment is not earned, it is learned. Two times in our text, Paul says that he has learned to be content. 
It's not something that he automatically knew. I don't think it's something that any of us automatically knows. He had to learn it. And the word for learn here in the original language means to be initiated into. So how do we move from coveting to a place of contentment? Paul says, God has taught me. He has initiated me into what contentment is all about. I find it interesting that the person who has the most to teach us about contentment was writing this letter while he was a prisoner. He was writing about contentment while he was in prison. Previously, Paul had been imprisoned in Rome, probably the Mamertine prison, which you can still visit today. This time around, he's under house arrest, but he's a prisoner nonetheless, chained to a Roman soldier around the clock, deprived of his possessions, deprived of privacy and freedom. He only has the bare minimum of food and clothing. And he's waiting in chains for his trial before Emperor Nero, which could easily end in his execution. So it's in the midst of these circumstances that Paul says that he has learned some things. In verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And in verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says at the beginning of verse 11 that he doesn't have any needs. He has learned the secret. Most of us don't go looking for contentment when things are going well. When things are well in our world, when they're well with our soul. It's when things are not going well. When we're in trouble or having to endure something very difficult or something that is chronic. Hanging on for month after month. It's in the hard times that we long to know Paul's secret for contentment. So I would say if things are well with your soul this morning and all is well in your world, remember the old proverb that says, thatch your roof while the sun is still shining. These words can be a wonderful preparation because I can promise you things change. There are seasons. And we know Jesus himself said, in this life you will have trials. You will have afflictions. And they can pull us away from that state of contentment so quickly. So how do you get to the point in your life where you can honestly say, as Paul did, I have nothing, and at the same time be able to say, and yet I need nothing? How do you get to the point where you can rise above saying what comes so easily, the the automatic response of, I'm not getting what's fair. My first point this morning is that we need to learn to trust in God's sovereignty. We need to learn to trust in God's sovereignty. Contentment begins with that confidence. Knowing that your life is in God's hands, the more we realize that God orders every single event of our lives for his glory and for our good, the more we can rest content. We call this the doctrine of God's providence. By providence, we mean that whatever God has created, he also upholds, he directs, he governs, so that his purposes will be accomplished. In other words, there's no event in the world that takes God by surprise. He's in absolute full control. And his purposes will prevail. And he always has our best interests at heart. I think we've spent a lifetime coming to believe that in the core of our being, that he always has my best interests at heart. Paul says in verse 10 to the Philippian church, 
I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity, opportunity to show it. You see, the, the Philippians had recently sent Paul some financial support. Since he could no longer do his leather work or his tent making because he was in chains. Before that, they had helped Paul financially while he was in Thessalonica. And when Paul rejoices in the gift, why is it then that he's not thanking the Philippians? Instead, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Why? Because Paul knew who had ultimately brought the help he needed. It was God in his providence, in his sovereignty, who was looking after him. And the Philippian church was simply the agent, the means of God's care. At the beginning of Paul's letter, we also find him resting contentedly in the sovereignty of God. Chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, meaning being imprisoned there, house arrest, has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He's saying it's not a mistake, it's not an oversight that I ended up a prisoner. God has ordered all of this to advance the gospel. He says in verse 21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, to die is experiencing even more of Christ. I don't have to be afraid of prison or even death. Wherever God wants to put me or use me for his glory is fine with me. Some years back, you may have seen the news articles about a 13-year-old girl by the name of Bethany Hamilton. Uh, She lost an arm to a shark in the fall of that particular year. She was a surfer. And she called the incident God's plan for my life. She said she was going to go with it. And I remember thinking at the time as I read about that, I don't know that I could say that. Just 10 weeks after that, Bethany finished fifth in the National Scholastic Surfing Association meet in Hawaii. When she was offered extra time to rest between heats, she refused, saying she wanted to be treated just like anyone else who was competing. So how is it that Bethany could say, this is God's plan for my life, and I'm going to go with it? I think the key to learning to trust God's sovereignty is this. And I think this is probably the most important thing that I can communicate with you this morning. And that is that you and I, we don't get to choose how we will glorify God. We don't get to choose how we will glorify God. Because he's the one who's sovereign. Just think about next month or next year. Do you realize that it's God who decides if you will glorify him as a healthy or unhealthy person? Single or married? Whether or not you'll glorify him as employed or unemployed? Alive here on earth? Or alive with him in heaven? But the bottom line is this, and this is why you can be content no matter where God places you, God's word says nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even death. And there's not a single hour of your life that is ever wasted in God's economy when you belong to him. 
He uses every experience that comes our way, every difficult situation. He uses every single piece of your life to his glory and for your good. Even bad things. The things that others intend us for harm. We can say like Joseph said to those who had sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. The second key to contentment is to learn to be realistic about your expectations. That's not very popular, is it? Learning to be realistic about your expectations. And it's not easy either. I guess I could make it even harder by saying learn to be satisfied with less. Paul says in verse 10 that he's rejoicing in the Lord because at just the right time, the Philippians have sent him money to add to his support. But he's not rejoicing because he's had needs and now they've been met. Quite the opposite. Instead, he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What, What is he talking about here? He's saying there's nothing I need. I don't have any needs. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because... I just need the basics, and through you, God has provided that for me. But I don't need anything more. Can you imagine saying that yourself today? There's absolutely nothing I need more than what I have. The truth is, you and I have so much more than Paul had, and yet, so often, we're still not content. Advertising and marketing companies are constantly telling us what we need. Think about what the goal is of advertising, to foster discontentment, to make you dissatisfied with what you have or how you look, and then to do their best to convince you that the most important priority in your life is your personal satisfaction and contentment. And all you have to do is buy this particular product and you'll have it all. Many things rob us from our contentment. Television commercials, Mail order catalogs, the internet, shopping malls, magazines. Because their success depends on making you dissatisfied with what you have and how you look, and then creating new desires and needs in you. I think my favorite tombstone of all time is actually a set of tombstones over in England. And the first one says, she died for want of things. Now, that word wants a little bit different in our language over here. I guess we would, we would write, she died because of her desire for things. And next to that, the next tombstone says, he died trying to give them to her. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. He's saying that all the things you have are not really yours in the end. And anyone who's ever been to a funeral knows that you can't take it with you when you die. Although I did read of a a lady a month ago who, who, who tried. Her name was Aurora Shuck. She lives in Indiana. And... uh, She had a Cadillac, a red Cadillac that she loved, and she begged her husband that when she died, he would have her buried in it. And so her husband dutifully went out and had to buy 14 plots, and they actually placed her in the car 
and in a big, huge vault. And he said when he died, he's going to be placed next to her, but they're going to switch places so he can have a time, a chance to be at the wheel. John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men in history. And when he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave? And the accountant answered, all of it. I think that's a wise answer. And while we're talking about unrealistic expectations, if we can move past things to relationships, I think then we go in a whole new direction. Because today's advertising world tells us that you deserve to have perfection there as well. A wife or husband that looks like a fashion model and who will meet all your emotional and physical needs. Children who will satisfy your desire to be needed, but only as long as you have that desire. And then magically when you don't, that'll somehow change. Parents who stay healthy and financially independent. A job that is challenging and interesting every day, pays enough to provide you with everything you desire. A life that is so interesting and rewarding that each day turns out better than the one before. And then we look around and we say, what's happened? What's the matter? I'm not getting what I deserve. If we're going to be content, you and I have to learn that contentment is not having what you want, but wanting what you have. Jill Briscoe wisely wrote, There is no man that can love me enough, no child that can need me enough, no job that can pay me enough, and no experience that can satisfy me enough. Only Jesus Christ. Well, our third point is learn that contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. You're probably familiar with this one. Paul found that the secret of contentment was not in his circumstances. Look at verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The important words are in any and every situation. He's saying it doesn't matter. The circumstances really don't matter. If you know that your life is in God's hands and you trust that he will order your life for his glory and for your good, then your immediate circumstances are irrelevant. Paul says it really doesn't matter if I'm living in plenty or in want. So let me ask you this morning to think about the question, what's the one thing separating you from joy and contentment? Fill in the blank. I will be happy when... And what would the rest of that sentence look like? I will be happy when? When I'm healthy, when I'm married, when I'm promoted, when I'm better off, when I'm retired, when the kids are all getting along, or when the kids are all employed, or when the kids are all mature. Now, if that one thing you need to be happy never comes to pass, could you be happy? If not, then you're joining all the others in the prison of want. So Paul's key to satisfaction was his relationship with Christ. He could say, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall want for nothing. He knew that what he had in Christ was so far greater than anything he didn't have in this life. 
He had a God who heard him when he called. He had unconditional acceptance and forgiveness of every sin he'd ever committed. He had guidance for every step of his life. He had the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. He had an anchor for every storm of life. And he had the hope of spending eternity with Christ so that he could say to die is gain. The key to satisfaction was living his life for the approval of Jesus Christ and serving him. So Paul focused on what he was supposed to do, not on what he felt he should have. His priority each day, each night, was to do the work God was calling him to do for his kingdom. And with that priority, it really didn't matter what his immediate circumstances were. And so he wanted the Philippians to know that in every situation, Christ would help him to be content. And that's true for you and me as well. Well, the last point is learn to depend on Christ's power to sustain you. If you're going to be content, you have to learn to depend on Christ's power to sustain you. In verse 13, he says, Regardless of my circumstances, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He says he can get through anything because of the power and endurance that Christ gives him. He's plugged into Christ as his battery, as his source. Perhaps you know someone with a pacemaker. I don't look around and see too many people who are that much older that maybe there's someone here who's already got one. Pacemakers are placed in the body to help the heart work properly. Now, the pacemaker only works when the heart fails to beat correctly. You could say that the pacemaker is a sustaining power. So when the person's heart does not function right, then the pacemaker takes in, it kicks in, and it regulates the heart rate for the person. Spiritually speaking, when you and I come to the end of our resources, that's when God's sustaining power springs into action. The only condition is that we need to be connected to Jesus Christ, to depend on him. If you're depending on yourself and your own strength, then you will be tied to your circumstances. The world tells us that all you need is found within yourself. But Paul says, not so. It's only with Christ's strength that I can face all conditions of life. The word for strengthen, when he says, I can do everything through him who strengthens me, is the Greek word dunamis. And dunamis is the word from which we get dynamite in English. It means to infuse power into something, to infuse strength into something, literally dynamite into. So Paul is saying that in the midst of the hardest circumstances, Jesus Christ throws his dynamite into him, and it's more than enough. In fact, he could even get to the point where he rejoiced in his weaknesses, because he found that the more he depended on God, the more divine strength he received. You remember the famous passage in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul was praying about his thorn in the flesh. And three times he asked the Lord to take it away, and three times the Lord said, nope, I'm not going to heal you. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response then in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, is to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
When you think you're at the end of your strength, God will pour the necessary dynamite into you to do the thing he has called you to do. But you've got to be connected to that power source. God cannot fill you with his spirit if you're filled with sin or self or pride. The more sin you allow into your life, the more short circuits you'll have in that connection with God and his powerhouse. So if you want a life characterized by contentment, you'll need to keep short accounts with God and stay plugged into him. One last point. One last key to being content from Paul, and that is to learn to focus on the welfare of others. You cannot be selfish and ever be content. A basic element of contentment is being focused on the welfare of others. And so he says in verse 14, it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Now this this requires a little focusing for a moment. Do you catch what Paul is saying to the Philippians here? He's saying that the reason he's so glad that they sent him the gift is because of what it means for them. And what does the gift mean for them? He says it's being credited to their account. Remember, the Philippians were a poor church. So how could whatever collection that they sent to Paul could somehow be credited to their account? And the answer was because they were laying up treasure in heaven. They were laying up treasure that would bring an eternal reward. And they were, their giving to Paul was being credited to their own account in heaven. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. Their good deeds toward Paul, their giving to him, was already earning interest in heaven's bank. So what in the world does that have to do with Paul's contentment? His words reveal the heart attitude of someone who's truly content. And that is that Paul's needs were not the main issue here. What little he has, he holds lightly, and he gives it up quickly. He's not worried about his present needs. He's not worried about his future needs. All he could see was the benefit to someone else. He's more concerned about the Philippians. And that shouldn't surprise us, he says in chapter 2. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And until we're able and willing to look to the interests of others... We cannot be content. Until that becomes a priority in our lives, we will struggle with this contentment. What do we gain when we focus on the needs of others? Perspective on our own situation and contentment. Rich actually tells of a short-term missionary who went to the island of Tobago. And on the last day of his mission trip, he was leading worship in a leper colony. He asked if anyone had a favorite song. A hand went up, and the hand belonged to a woman whose face was completely disfigured from the leprosy. She had no ears or nose left. Her lips were gone. And the hand that she raised had not a single finger left on it. But she raised her hand just the same, and she asked, Could we sing Count Your Many Blessings? The missionary started the song, but he said he couldn't finish. Later, someone said to him, 
I suppose you'll never be able to sing that song again. And he said, no, I'll sing it. But just never in the same way. Mother Teresa said, you cannot really say Christ is all I need until Christ is all you've got. I think that's part of why Paul tells us to be willing to associate with those of low repute. That's why I go back to Africa every summer. I don't like going. Everything's very, very different. The security in Nairobi is horrendous. And it's just a grueling, grueling few weeks that I'm there. But the reason I go is because it puts things in perspective. And I find that there are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that I can relate to so quickly because of that common bond. And it's a joy to go and to serve them. I remember when we brought, we brought our oldest son to college. He, he was at uh, Calvin over in Grand Rapids. And he just packed everything but the kitchen sink. And it took two cars for us to get there. We didn't have a van at that time or anything. And uh, we were putting everything away. He had a roommate who was from Nigeria who had gotten there the day before. And when we moved everything in, uh, Hemensis was not there. He was off at an orientation for international students. But when we looked in his closet, because there were no doors, there was one shirt on a hanger. There was one pair of pants. There was one pair of shoes. And I watched my son David, and he began to get more and more uncomfortable. And after about 20 minutes, he said, you know, I don't think I need all this. (laughs) His perspective had changed. His perspective had changed. That is the gift of being willing to serve and spend time with those who are less fortunate than us. Are you hoping that a change in circumstances will lead to a change in your attitude? If so, then you're in prison, the prison of want. And you need to learn Paul's secrets of contentment. If you're going to be a person who's content, you must first learn to be content with a little. And you must be confident that the little is really what God in his sovereignty has provided. And the only way that you can ever get there is by discovering that what you have in Jesus Christ is far greater than anything that's missing in your life. Yes, it's a matter of focus. And as you plug into the Lord's power, you will be adequate to any situation that God places you in. That is his promise. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you underneath of the everlasting arms. And as you focus on the needs of others, your own circumstances will be put into proper perspective. Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed we have so much more than the Apostle Paul had materially speaking and freedom-wise. We can't begin to relate to what it would mean to be in prison and then to be under house arrest. And yet, he was so much further ahead. We confess our love for material things, our love for comfort, our love of self. And we pray that you would teach us perspective to love ourselves as you have loved us and in the same way that we love others. We thank you 
for giving us this portion of your word that we may learn that it's a process to be learned. Contentment is a process. May we take your word to heart. May we learn to be content, that we may truly glorify you in all our responses to the situations and circumstances that come our way. How we thank you that you are sovereign and you have our best interests at heart. May we learn to be content as we follow in Jesus' footsteps. Corinthians 10 we read, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The sun is 93 million miles away from us, yet every day we feel its warmth and its light here on the earth. The Lord Jesus is away at the right hand of God the Father, yet he is present here with us now. His warmth and his presence come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is the real presence of God. God is present here in and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't look for a physical presence here in the elements of the bread and wine, but rather, rather a covenantal presence, a presence of Christ manifest in his engagement in power in our own lives. Christ is present and has been present in all the elements of our worship, in our praying, our singing, our hearing, our breaking, and our eating and drinking. The catalyst for all of this is faith. And this is our faith. Even the faith that we have is a gift of God, so that we can't even boast about that. So the bread and the wine represent God's offer to us of Christ. And it's in faith that we receive them and we gracious, gracious, gratefully accept what he has offered to us. And in doing so, we are taking a covenantal oath. And in doing so, this is the ultimate pledge of allegiance. We live in a world that is constantly trying to lure us away from that allegiance. But we want nothing to do with that. So we come here every week to renew our vows and the privilege of doing so in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. So come. Welcome to Christ. Christ's body is broken for us. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.